Coming up on Technation, it turns out that you actually recall your life in moments, little slices of life. Dan Heath talks about the power of moments. Then on Technation Health, the fight against cancer cells with genetically engineered viruses. Dr. Harry Gruber from Tokogen explains their effort in glioblastoma, which has received the designation of breakthrough therapy from the FDA. Other targets include colorectal, breast, lung, pancreatic, and renal cancers, as well as melanoma. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. While everyone is getting higher and higher hopes for driverless cars, especially worn-out soccer moms and baby boomers who suspect there will be an end to their days behind the wheel, we all need to adjust our bearings. While the technology is improving, we humans are still humans. A driver with twice the legal limit of alcohol was found sound asleep at the wheel of his Tesla, which had stopped right smack in the middle of the San Francisco Bay Bridge. No problem, he asserted. The Tesla was set to autopilot. It was the car's fault. It had stopped while in traffic and apparently needed the driver to start it up again. This and other incidents, and it's not just Tesla, show us that driverless cars haven't completely worked out the kinks, but it also points to something else. The driver has to be present, and that is problematic for any human, drunk or sober. In what situations might we find ourselves where we can be completely in our own thoughts and suddenly we're needed to physically intervene, to be prepared to act, and make quick decisions. One applicable scenario might be security guards. One reason they get up periodically and walk around the premises is to stay alert. They have to move their bodies. They engage their minds. They need to record events. They may practice incident scenarios. It's all about ensuring that they're ready for action when no action is really expected. And not just after hours on the job, but often for weeks and months at a time. They can't eat a whole pizza midway through their shift and hope to stay alert. It just can't happen. So why would you think you could share a pizza and a pitcher of beer with your buddies after work and then get in your car and have it automatically drive you home, say 30 miles away? I'd be asleep inside five minutes. But you can't be asleep even in a driverless car. You have to be alert and ready to take the wheel. The fact is, we're still human. Without technology, we haven't gotten any better at doing any number of tasks. We haven't gotten any faster. And we certainly don't seem to have any more discipline than our ancestors did. So if humans are still humans, what do we do now that our technology is bringing us cars that hurtle down the highway at 70 miles an hour without us doing a darn thing?
in addition to getting the driverless cars to work as perfectly as possible, we also need to design the driver experience so that the driver stays alert. Well, you can't have the driver get up and walk around. You can't have him play video games. You can't have him buried with his head in a novel or work on his computer. Surely someone has worked this out. Actually, it doesn't seem so. Ford found that the engineers who were testing its driverless cars kept falling asleep. Alarm bells didn't work. Flashing lights didn't work. Having a second engineer in the car didn't work. So besides figuring out how to keep a driver alert, the technology has to be able to tell if he is alert. And if not, pull over on the side and park. When he wakes up, it will too. Being human isn't easy. The technology is getting better, faster, and cheaper. But we're not. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, the moments of your life. That's right. That's what your brain remembers, not whole events, moments. Dan Heath joins me to talk about the power of moments. Then on Tech Nation Health, it's the power of viruses against cancer. I'll speak with Dr. Harry Gruber, the president for science and innovation at Tokagen, about their genetically engineered viruses. Their first treatment for cancer, glioplastoma, has received the breakthrough therapy designation from the FDA. Also, colorectal cancer, breast cancer, lung, pancreatic and renal cancers, and melanoma. He'll explain how the virus works. Dan Heath, the author of The Power of Moments, Why Certain Experience Have Extraordinary Impact, opens the book with the story of Signing Day. So this starts in the fall of 2000. Two friends, Chris Barbick and Donald Commence, are sitting in a pub in Houston, Texas. So Chris and Donald were helping to start a school together, a startup charter school called Yes Prep. And they were spending, you know, 14-hour days at work. And they had gotten in the habit of after these long days, they'd go sit at this pub and have a beer and, and share the only item of food on the bar's menu, which was a reheated tombstone pizza. And this one night they were watching ESPN on the bar TV and ESPN was highlighting the upcoming signing day, which is the day when high school football athletes declare what colleges they're going to play ball for. So it's a big day for college football fans. And as Chris and Donald watched this, they started to groan and moan a little bit about how much attention we pay as a society toward football players. And meanwhile, the kids that they were serving at their school, primarily from low-income Hispanic families, you know, a lot of times they'd be the first person in their whole family to graduate from high school or 
almost certainly be the first person in their families to go on to college. And they said, why don't our students get this sort of treatment? And don't we have misplaced values? And at some point in the conversation, things just tipped. And all of a sudden they said, well, hey, why don't we create a day like that for our students? And the idea for Senior Signing Day was hatched. And as they conceptualized it, and a few months later they actually had the first example of this, here's how it worked. Their graduating seniors would take the stage one by one. I should tell you one thing about Yes Prep is that in order to graduate, you must obtain admission to a four-year school. Now, they can't force you to go, obviously, but they can force you to get admission. So you have to go through the application process. And so they knew every single one of their graduating seniors would have admission to college. And so these seniors, they would take the stage one by one, and they would announce where they were going to go to school in the fall, and they would bring up with them on stage some kind of school swag, you know, a T-shirt or a pennant or Just a like the kids do who are signing with colleges to go to college to play athletics there. Exactly right. And so they had created this one day when these kids in their difficult academic work would be celebrated with the same pomp and circumstance that a great football quarterback or running back would get. And when they made their announcements, you know, the whole room would erupt in cheers and applause. And afterwards, the students would be matched with their families and they would sit down at a table and sign a letter of matriculation signaling their intent to go to school in the fall. It was kind of like a governor signing a bill. And Chris Barbic told me after that very first run, there was barely a dry eye in the room. It was so clear what these families had sacrificed to get their kids to that moment. And they knew right away from the very first run that this would be the most important day of the year at Yes Prep. And since then, every year it snowballs a little bit. The graduating senior class gets bigger. They add more schools. They invite every single student at Yes Prep to come from sixth grade through graduating seniors along with their families. And to give you an idea of the scale, I went to see this last year. They now have signing day in the arena where the Houston Rockets play basketball. I'm here to tell you, when those graduating seniors take the stage and they do in exactly the same way as they did that first time, 10,000 people cheer them on. Can you imagine? 10,000 people clapping, applauding, cheering for what these students have done. That's a defining moment. What's so amazing to me is that it never existed before. <laughs> Just right out of thin air. And that's exactly why we wanted to start the book with that story, because that is the theme of this book, that... This moment, this senior signing day, which, by the way, has spread to schools across the country, thousands of people every year now have a defining moment that was conjured up out of thin air by two friends in a bar one night with a tombstone pizza in hand. And it just goes to show us that, that if we are thoughtful and intentional about creating these special moments, uh, we, can, we can make some of the most memorable, meaningful experiences that people will ever have. You also point out that we remember in moments when we go back and look at various things. There's little slivers of, of moments, slivers of memory that hit us about what happened. It's how we recall them. Slivers is a great word. Psychologists have learned so much about how we remember our experiences. And there's no sense in which when we look back on, say, a family vacation from a few years ago or a semester in college, you know, there's no film that we can load up and play from beginning to end uh, with perfect recollection of our, our memories, of course. What we remember, it's sort of like a trailer from the film. It's just a collection of scenes and moments and snippets. 
And psychologists have even learned that there are certain moments in particular that we disproportionately recall. One of them is called the peak. And when we're talking about positive experiences, that's the most positive moment of a positive experience. And the other are the transitions, you know, the endings, the beginnings. In fact, a study of uh, memories from college found that 40% of people's memories came from the month of September, you know, which, of course, is the beginning of the school year. And so what this tells us is, number one, when we talk about experiences, and this is really a book about improving experience, whether it's for a customer or for a student or a patient or even your own kids, when we talk about improving experience, ultimately what we're talking about are moments, particular moments. And that furthermore, it's the peak moments in particular that really come to define these experiences. And so the question is, are we investing in peak moments? First of all, we got to recognize they're there. <laughs> yeah. There's peaks, there's transitions, there's pits. When I was reading your book, all of a sudden I remembered that time I, I went in to apply for a summer job at a big firm in, near Stanford. And uh, I remember the receptionist. Of course, this is years and years ago. I was 18. And, and she said, there will be no summer jobs. There's no reason for you to fill out an application. And I said, I'd like to fill out an application. So finally, she gives me the application and a pen. And I go over and I fill out the application. And I so remember handing her the application all filled out. She's looking at me straight in the eye with this. You must be kidding. And um, I was so mad at her. I kept the pen. <laughs> That's what I remember. I'll show you. I'll keep That was your, your souvenir of this moment. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't know what happened to the I'll pen. I'll show you. I'll show you. And the dumb thing was, I ended up getting a call in about a week, got hired. It's how I discovered computers, changed my career, changed my major, took off, That you know, defined my life. If I'd listened to her, I would have walked out the door, you know. <laughs> I wish that I kept that great gumption. Pen. Yeah. yeah. You should have bronzed that pen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gumption I got. This always pay off like that. But I mean, it's, it's funny, you know, it's like these moments and, and understanding them. And, and then I realized, you know, it was sort of a pit moment that could have been worse, but turned out to have real silver lining. You talk about filling in those pits. How do we do that? There's a great study of service experiences where uh, the researchers asked people to recall a really positive encounter they'd had recently. You know, maybe it was with a restaurant or a hotel or an airline, probably not an airline as I say that. Uh, but they found that 25% of these positive moments that people recalled actually started with a service failure. Something went wrong. You know, your food came out cold or you missed your flight or your hotel room wasn't ready. But the way that the staff handled it was so great that they actually flipped a pit or what could have been a pit, into a peak. And I think that that's a nice metaphor for life, that, that life, of course, is full of, of natural pits and peaks, but that if we're alert to those moments when people need extra help, you know, we can potentially be an asset to them. One example that's a little bit more kind of high stakes comes from a healthcare group called Intermountain Health in Colorado, and it concerns patients who learn that they have a cancer diagnosis. And, of course, that's just a, a horrible, horrible blow, a, a terrible pit, uh, as we can all uh, understand. But what they've done is they've said, look, 
we can't do anything about that diagnosis. That's not under our control, but we can be there for them at this extraordinarily vulnerable moment. And so what they did is they organized this kind of all hands action plan day that happens about a week after the diagnosis and the patient and their, their family, they come into a room, they sit there the whole day and their entire care team cycles in and out. I mean, nurses, uh, surgeons, oncologists, physical therapists, dietitians, they're coming to them to create a plan of care. And so that saves them what most cancer patients go through, which is in the, in the face and in the wake of this horrible diagnosis, you run this gauntlet of appointments across many weeks, across different sites. It's all organized in one day where people are coming to you. And to me, that's a great example of how even though we can't prevent life's pits, we can be ready to turn those moments into something more positive, into something more supportive, just by being aware of it. There are numerous instances in your book where you realize that something could just continue to be ordinary but became extraordinary by things that that were almost ordinary in themselves. Let's give the example of the most popular, the most highly rated hotel in Los Angeles. <laughs> this is one of my favorite stories in the book. So there's this hotel in Los Angeles called the Magic Castle I stayed there uh, last year, and and first thing I should tell you is whatever image you've got in your head of the Magic Castle Hotel is wrong. Dump it. it is neither a castle <laughs> nor it, does it look particularly magical. What it does look like is a budget motel, two stories, that's been painted bright yellow. So it is a, a thoroughly unremarkable place to look at. The rooms are fine. I mean, they're clean, they're, they're neat, but they're certainly nothing to distinguish them from any place else. When I was there, I splurged on a balcony, and it was pretty comical because my balcony, as it turns out, was about three feet off the ground. So, uh, you know, when people walked by outside, I could kind of lean over and slap them five. Um, so this place is ordinary in almost every visual way. But I'm here to tell you an interesting fact about the Magic Castle, which is that on TripAdvisor, it is rated the number two hotel in Los Angeles ahead of hundreds of other hotels, including ahead of the number three, which is the Four Seasons Beverly Hills. And so you ask yourself, how Ow. in the world could that be true? <laughs> but I haven't told you some important things about the Magic Castle, and I'll, I'll start with there's a cherry red phone mounted by the pool in the courtyard, and it's kind of mysterious. And if you pick it up, hold it to your ear, someone answers, Popsicle Hotline, may I help you? And you can order up cherry or grape or orange popsicles delivered to you poolside on a silver tray by someone wearing white gloves like an English butler, all for free. They have a snack menu where you can get free goodies just for asking and a board game menu and a movie menu where you can check out games and films. And they have magicians do tricks in the lobby several times a week. And you can drop off your laundry in the morning. They'll wash and fold it over the course of the day and deliver it to you at night. All free. And <laughs> All for free. And so now you can start to imagine how it could be the case that this, this very ordinary-looking place could delight customers. And the moral of the story, I think, is that – and frankly, I think it's a very comforting moral. And that is that when we think about great experiences, we might have the misconception that they're nonstop great, that they're wall-to-wall -wall great. But I think what's far more common – is that great experiences are mostly forgettable and occasionally remarkable. 
And that's the story of the Magic Castle. Ordinary rooms, an ordinary exterior, an ordinary pool, but certain moments of magic that make people forget everything else. And, and the thing I think we've got to be diligent about is that those remarkable moments, they don't create themselves. And that's where we come in. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dan Heath, a senior fellow at Duke University's Case Center, supporting entrepreneurs to achieve social good. With his brother, Stanford business professor Chip, they've written The Power of Moments, Why Certain Experiences Have Extraordinary Impact. Well, you guys got together and you unpacked these moments and said, gee, there are four principles here that make defining moments. Let's start with elevation. What does that mean? So as we looked across all these positive experiences ranging from really big to to smaller ones, we kept finding these same four patterns again and again. And the first was elevation, which means that there was something about the moment that lifts you out of the everyday. It might because... It might be because there are sensory pleasures. Think about a birthday party and you've got decorations on the wall and there's music playing and there's friends around, there's cake. It might also be because you're absorbed in the moment. Think about the way you feel when you're playing a basketball game or you're giving a, a public presentation. You know, it's like your your entire energy is is in the moment. That's elevation. The second is insight. You know, moments of insight are are sudden realizations or transformations that in an instant we may realize we can't take one more day of the job we're in or in an instant we realize the person sitting across the dinner table from us is the person we're going to marry. The third characteristic of defining moments is pride. So these are moments when we've accomplished something we weren't sure we could or moments when other people are recognizing us for some work that we've done or for talents that we have. And then the final ingredient of defining moments, if you will, is, is connection. You think about how many uh, defining moments are social, weddings and graduations and baptisms and vacations and bar mitzvahs and sporting events. And these moments strengthen our ties to others, whether we're talking about a personal relationship or whether it's uh, uh, some work a group has done, for instance, that, that really cements their bonds. I really found that they bear thinking about in regard to, gee, are you kind of short-circuiting what the positive outcomes could be for having these defining moments? Um, A common thing we might say is, you know, oh, that doesn't happen all the time. Don't count on it, as opposed to uh, embracing the moment. It happened. It was extraordinary. Or in terms of pride, whether we're taking pride in ourselves or pride in someone else, I remember we used to talk about this family next door to us, and they'd all say to each other, oh, aren't you proud of yourself? It's like, well, you better not be proud of yourself around them. And I thought, you, <laughs> somebody go give them all treatment. I don't even know. They're probably scattered to the wind now. But um, yeah, you, you kind of like, what are the messages around me that might stop me from really embracing? and getting the full pleasure out of it and the full benefit of these defining moments. Well, I think one way to, to look at that is we cite an article that was written by a palliative care nurse called Regrets of the Dying. And she said, you know, she's spending her time literally with people on their deathbeds. And she was recounting the most common end-of-life regrets that she'd heard. 
And I, I, I think there's something to these regrets that speaks to the issue of what is it that holds us back from creating these moments. And some of them, for instance, are I wish I hadn't worked so hard. So it, it's like the, the grind of work and the routines of work is, is one factor that holds us back. Other people said, I wish I'd had more courage to express my feelings or to pursue a, live, uh, a life rather that was true to me rather than what I thought people expected of me. And I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. And, and so I, I think you can distill from some of these comments that in many ways the, the enemy of defining moments is the relentless pressure of the daily routine. It's like the desire to to be a little bit more efficient, to cram a little bit more into every day. And there's something about that that kind of lulls us into this this flatness, um, that, that our life becomes a flat landscape where there could have been mountain peaks. It, it amazes me because every time you can find the defining moment, you can actually turn something positive into it, whether it's uh, people staying at your hotel getting action plans for your, you know, horrific health diagnosis, uh, whatever it is, you can be lifted. And when it comes to like a family or friends, having such a defining moment, recalling it together, lifts everyone. And uh, once you start to look at that, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating way to redefining everything we've been all talking about, about how life is supposed to work. It actually is like, oh, we could actually go node to node, defining moment to defining moment, that there is a pattern here and that it itself tells a story. Well, I think that's right. And I think, you know, one, one fear that I have about this book actually is, you know, the stories like Popsicle Hotline are so much fun that, that I worry people think, oh, to make a defining moment in life is a production of some kind. You know, it's, it's like I've got to spend money and I've got to produce it in some way. And, and what I want to emphasize is the book is full of stories that are really quiet and, and kind of personal, but, but they're just examples of ways that you can plunge further into a moment. Like one example that, that really stuck with me is uh, Sarah Blakely, the woman that started uh, the juggernaut Spanx, she uh, she has a fascinating backstory, which I won't uh, repeat here, but, but she had to show a tremendous amount of grit and resilience during the startup process. Nobody would take her seriously. She couldn't even find factories to produce samples of the Spanx product because nobody got it. They were all run by men who didn't get the benefit of the product. People were asking her, what allowed you to survive this gauntlet? And she said, in many ways, it dates back to a question that her father asked at the dinner table. He would ask her and her siblings, what did you fail at this week? And she says, it sounds like a, a weird question, but, but really the intent is very powerful because what he wanted us to see was that failure was not something to be terrorized by and that we shouldn't avoid pursuing things that we want. We shouldn't avoid embracing new passions just because we're afraid we could fail. And so in a sense, he was inoculating her against the sting of failure. And, and what I love about that is, look, we're all having dinner with our families already. This is a moment that already exists. And if we just reconceptualize it a little bit and, and get out of the daily habit of saying, you know, what did you learn at school today? Nothing. Uh, <laughs> this is a question that can really change the trajectory of that time that we spend together. I'm speaking with Dan Heath, the author of The Power of Moments, Why Certain Experiences Have Extraordinary Impact. We'll talk more 
after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation, Biotech Nation, and Tech Nation Health are available at iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, the fight against cancer with genetically engineered viruses. We'll hear from Tokagen's Dr. Harry Gruber. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Dan Heath, the author of The Power of Moments, Why Certain Experiences Have Extraordinary Impact. I remember that the sort of the beginning and the end of earning a PhD, I, I was at a Thanksgiving dinner in the southern part of Indiana, I'd never been there before, at a, one of my friend's families. And the woman next to me said, well, when are you going to get your PhD? And I said, I don't know. I only decided to get one yesterday. You know, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I can remember, you know, you can remember where you were sitting, what you were eating. <laughs> and then at the very end, I turned everything in and walking out of the building, and I literally had checked off everything on the list, turned everything in, looked around and went, gee, what do I do now? I mean, I was totally <laughs> lost. Like, oh, I guess I could go home. You know, it's like, <laughs> didn't really know. And so there are lighter defining moments, things that sort of come up for you that you don't really think about so much that I think bear witness to the transitions in our lives that are not traditional, but tell us something has ended, something new has to begin. You brought up an important term, which is uh, transitions. So many of the cultural defining moments that, that we're all familiar with, you know, wedding ceremonies and graduation ceremonies and rites of passage and birthdays, those occasions are pegged to transitions in life. And so when you catch on to that, you start to realize that, hey, you know, in your kid's school and in your work uh, and in your life, you need to start paying careful attention to transitions. And so a good example of, of how this kind of thinking can be practical is to think about the first day of work for a new employee. 
classic transition, right? You've got someone who's coming into a new place. There's a physical transition. There's an intellectual transition with new work. There's a social transition with new colleagues. And yet in most organizations, I would uh, venture to say the vast majority, the first day of work is sort of this haphazard, clumsy affair where the employee comes in and probably somebody forgot they were coming in that day and they're shown to their desk and you know, there's a computer there, but it hasn't been set up yet. And so you ask them to sit around and flip through the ethics and compliance binder until IT comes around. And um, it's a huge missed opportunity because here is a classic transition in need of a moment of, of demarcation or celebration. But the example that we found was of a company, in this case, John Deere, that realized the potential this moment had, and they created what they called the first day experience. And let me just kind of walk you through how this works. So you accept your offer at John Deere. First thing that happens is before you even start, you start getting emails from a a buddy within John Deere, and they introduce themselves and share a photo with you, and they tell you, you know, here's where we go to lunch, and here's what people wear, and here's where you should park on your first day. And they also tell you they'll be waiting for you that first day at 9 a.m., So you show up the first day, and sure enough, there they are. You recognize them from their photo, and they've got a cup of coffee there for you. And you walk into the lobby, and the first thing you notice is on the big flat-screen TVs in the lobby, your name is in bright lights. You know, welcome, Steve. And you're like, wow, they paid attention to me. And you're shown up to your desk, and there's this tall banner near your desk that's about seven feet tall. It raises above the height of the cube, so people from across the floor can see there's somebody new clue them in to come introduce themselves. There's a, a replica, a stainless steel replica of the original self-polishing plow that John Deere created, and a card by it explains why it was such a big deal and why farmers appreciated it so much. Your first email in your inbox is from the CEO of John Deere, Sam Allen, and it's a little video that um, shows him sharing some thoughts about his own career, and he talks about the mission of John Deere, which is to provide the food and the shelter and the infrastructure that's going to be needed by the planet's growing population. At lunch, your colleagues take you out and they tell you about the projects underway and they pepper you with questions about your background. And In the afternoon, your boss and your boss's boss both come by to make appointments to have coffee with you. And man, you walk out of there yeah, that and day you got thinking, so many friends. <laughs> yeah. I they mean, love me. Isn't that exciting? There's a there, Isn't there. that so different? But I, I know that is uh, I know that is a, a great distance indeed from the first days of work I've had. Um, and you walk out of there thinking, I belong here. I'm in the place I'm supposed to be. In fact, when they rolled this out, they started by rolling it out into some offices in Asia. And, and in Beijing, it was such a hit that some of their longtime employees were saying, can we quit and rejoin so we can get this first day experience? And that's to me, a, a great example of, of what we're trying to get across in this book, which is we can predict which moments are important, like that first day transition moment. And we have all the power and control we need to make something of that moment, to make it memorable, to make it meaningful. Now, you're back at uh, Duke University, and you're working in their case center, as you said. And, and you're working with entrepreneurs trying to create social good or their, what what the business that they're about is social good. Tell us about that. How, what work do you do there and, and what part do you have in it? Yeah, so CASE is the name of the center uh, in the business school at Duke Fuqua. 
And CASE was one of the first centers founded uh, to explore social entrepreneurship, which is basically just applying entrepreneurial thinking and strategies to uh, an environment where the financial bottom line isn't the only bottom line. And so, you know, classic social entrepreneurs would be, you know, Wendy Kopp with Teach for America or, you know, the founders of Tom Shoes or What's and Tom Shoes gives away a pair of shoes for every shoes you buy. Exactly right. And so, you know, Tom Shoes is an example of how a social entrepreneur can make a profit. It's not inherently nonprofit. It's just about we want entrepreneurs thinking about scale in the same way that Silicon Valley entrepreneurs think about scale. We want them, you know, big dreams, big plans, because the world is facing a lot of big problems and we need people whose skills are commensurate to those problems. So some of the things I work on, uh, there's a, a scholarship program called Launchpad where we try to take uh, students' ideas from the idea stage into implementation. And uh, a couple of years ago, the student that won, uh, Rachel Lichty, just a, a extraordinary student, her idea was to create an ethical diamond supply chain. Uh, which is just, I mean, talk about audacity. That's a huge, huge say, goal. The Venn diagram on that, the circles don't meet, as I recall. <laughs> it, it is, I mean, she chose a high degree of difficulty, to say the least, but, I mean, she meant it. She spent most of her second semester, second year in Sierra Leone. She had negotiated a treaty with one of the village chiefs to dig for diamonds in a local mine. She had set up a, a humane kind of uh, labor supply chain. She had made plans to plow some of the profits back into the local community. Uh, I'll tell you, I think that she would have succeeded if it were not for the intervention of Ebola, which happened right at a critical time for her as as her plans expanded. And of course, Sierra Leone was ground zero for that particular outbreak, and it just screwed everything up. But I cite that just to give you an example of the kind of ambition and the kind of entrepreneurial skill that we're seeing these days. And it's it's just, uh, it, it's a fun time to be in the field. Now, you do give a couple of examples, or actually give many examples about how you can do things to create defining moments in your life. Let's talk about some of them. I, I have to say, break the script is a good one. You know, someone asks you, how you how are you doing? And you, you actually answer them. Here's a good start. <laughs> Yeah, breaking the script, uh, the, the use of the word script goes back to some some early cognitive science work. Scripts refer to our expectations of how experiences will unfold. And so you you walk in a restaurant, even if you've never been there before, you're going to have no trouble operating in that environment because you've been in a 100 restaurants and the script works in the same way. You're shown to a table and you've brought your menu and somebody fills your water glass and so on. And the same thing is true of our lives, that Many aspects of our lives operate according to scripts. You know, your mornings are probably pretty similar. You get up and you shower and you brush your teeth and you make your coffee. You commute to work in the same way. And your weekends probably even have a script. And And the point of the script is, number one, they're efficient because you practice them a lot and they don't require a whole lot of, uh, of conscious investment of energy. But they're also unmemorable. That almost by definition, the more you have operated according to a script over time, the the less memorable those experiences will be. I mean, just the same way that I, you can't possibly recall your morning, you know, last November the 14th, uh, because there was nothing really to distinguish it from all the surrounding mornings. 
so we talk in the book about if we want to create memorable experiences, often the best way to do that is to break the script. And that, that can take on a variety of meanings depending on what kind of experience we're talking about. There's one example in the book that uh, your listeners may be familiar with. It went viral a few years ago. But it starts with a family that was vacationing in Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Florida. And they had their little boy with them who had his sleeping buddy was a stuffed giraffe named Joshi. And, you know, if your kids have a have a stuffed animal that's like their special pal, you know how important that is. Hey, like, I still no have mine. Joshi. I still have mine. <laughs> I can see it any day. It's up on the shelf in my room. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you get, better get you, tread, you better tread carefully with this story. <laughs> well, this is where it gets this is where it gets dicey because they get home and Joshi ain't in the suitcase. <gasps> Somebody forgot Joshi. Oh. And so naturally the parents freak out. They're worried will their child ever sleep again and and the dad, I mean our hearts go out to the dad and and he thought he had no choice really but to just tell a bald-faced lie which was, "Well, son, um Joshi just felt like he needed some extra time at the resort. So we decided to let him stick around and just get some more R&R. And uh, his son bought that. And so it That's bought good. them a little bit of that time. That was a good one. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't bad, right? Yeah. He's got so to get a couple of days, but a couple of days. <laughs> exactly. The, t- the, the clock is ticking. And so they get in touch with the Ritz. And the dad confesses, hey, I told my son this thing about how Joshy stuck around. Do you think you could help me out a little bit? So – Joshi comes back. They they sent him back quickly. And along with Joshi is an entire photo album of Joshi's time at the resort. <gasps> oh. uh, there's a picture of Joshi reclining on a lounge chair by the pool and a picture of Joshi laying back at the table at the spa with cucumber slices over his little stuffed eyes. And there's a picture of Joshi in the control room at the Ritz uh, messing with the knobs and watching the security cameras. And it's just this extraordinary magical thing to do that that no other hotel would have done. I mean, you can't imagine, you know, the Holiday Inn Express, like whipping up a photo album like that. And to us, that's an example of breaking the script, of just so thoroughly demolishing our expectations of what's going to happen in that situation that it's really an extraordinary experience. And And the proof of that is the dad wrote a blog post about this. He was so excited about it. And pretty soon millions of people around the world are reading the story of this little boy's stuffed giraffe, Joshi. Well, you know, I might disagree with you. Can yeah. I imagine Holiday Inn Express? I would be willing to bet that one person at that particular resort at that particular time said, you know what we could do? You know, that kind of an idea can come from anyone anywhere. It could come from a Holiday Inn Express. It could come from a B&B that, you know, it could come from it. That's the kind of thought process an individual could think up. And then everybody's got to kind of be in on the fun to go and do that. These kind of ideas can happen to any human. And they're really I, I couldn't magical. agree with you more, actually. Yeah, I, I, I think you're 100% right that, that Ritz-Carlton staffers don't have a monopoly on thoughtfulness or creativity. I, I think where the friction comes in is that these employees who have these thoughtful ideas are within systems that, that operate in different ways with respect to those ideas. So it's like Ritz is the kind of place where those special moments are valued and supported and you can get time carved out of your day to spend two hours like whipping a stuffed animal around the resort and snapping photos versus my guess is 
the, the staffer you imagine at the Holiday Inn Express having the same idea, all of a sudden there's this kind of crushing – I hate to pick on Holiday Inn Express. I don't know anything about their systems. Yep. But at, we'll at get a generic, cards and letters. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at a generic, a non-progressive hotel that there are these systems in place that would tend to, to quash a great idea like that. And I think that's, that's one message of the book is that, that employees deserve more autonomy – to make these moments happen and that our, our quest to systematize all aspects of the service experience uh, is doomed for that reason, that you, you can't stamp out positive experiences the way you stamp out semiconductors, that there's an inherent variability there. Well, a big shout-out to the people at the Ritz-Carlton. I bet they had a great time doing it, and that is absolutely brilliant. And a big shout-out to the Holiday Inn Express and other generic uh, I hope they weren't sponsors. Hey, it's just as valuable <laughs> with pictures of Joshi at the, at the Coke machine and in the parking lot and whatever else they could pull off, sitting on the fence, you know, all of that. Uh, you know, it, it, it just speaks to connection and what we can all do together. So thank you so much, Dan. Please come back and see me. Bring your brother, Chip. I don't think we've ever done an interview where you couldn't tell who was talking because you had the same voice. But <laughs> Yeah, we should have a joint, joint brotherly interview. That would be good. You could get in a fight. It'd be great. That would be really great. Yeah, yeah. Get some sibling <laughs> rivalry live on the air. You got yeah, thanks it. so much for having me on the show. We really appreciate it. My guest today is Dan Heath, the author of The Power of Moments, Why Certain Experiences Have Extraordinary Impact. It's published by Simon & Schuster. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. The fight against cancer calls for innovative and unprecedented approaches. Some emergent cancer treatments turn to viruses. Dr. Harry Gruber is the president for science and innovation at Tokagen. I commented to him that we don't like it when someone says, I caught a virus. But the truth is, there are good viruses. Absolutely. There are more good viruses than bad viruses. So we think about viruses as causing disease, like smallpox. But then we also think about viruses as being the basis for vaccines. And so like smallpox, which was the first vaccine, you could actually prevent disease by being vaccinated. And so there have been more uh, lives saved from vaccinations. And we've all had them, polio, vaccines, measles, mumps, rubella, you name it, we've all been vaccinated. And we don't get those diseases. That's an amazing impact on the health of humanity. Now, a virus, when it goes into your body, it it actually invades a cell. Yes, viruses uh, don't have their own ability to survive. They have to live inside a cell. But most viruses don't cause any damage. And so you can take a virus that's not damaging and put an extra gene in, a therapeutic gene. And then that virus can go deliver something that really helps someone. So in the case of smallpox, it presents the smallpox proteins to the immune system in a way that's safe. 
now we know that you can do a lot more powerful things with viruses besides just vaccinating people against infectious diseases, which was amazing to start with. Now, you're working in the area of glioblastomas. Actually, all cancer, but glioblastoma, brain cancer, is your first candidate, if you will. You've got a whole lot of cancer cells. Viruses can get into a cancer cell in the brain? Absolutely. Uh, Viruses are especially able to get into the cancer environment because really the essence of cancer is that the mutant cells of the cancer produce proteins that can inactivate the immune system and therefore hide in the body. Our body should be able to clear those cancer cells, but the cancer fights back and inactivates. So these viruses can deliver genes right into the cancer cell that the cancer cell now makes to turn off the uh, attacking or the breaks on the immune system and allow the immune system to find the tumor and kill it. The reason it really took over is that whatever it was doing, producing these masks, if you will, to the immune system, you're saying we have to get in there and reveal the cell. That's exactly right. Our vision as a company is no one should die of cancer. And the reason we feel strongly about that is that the immune system is the natural way to kill cancer. And now with gene therapy, with the right viruses and the right genes, it can be accomplished. So you can engineer both the virus and the gene you're sending in that you've attached to it. You can engineer everything from beginning to end to do exactly what you want it to do. We reprogram the cancer cell so that it teaches the immune system how to kill the cancer cell. Over here, over here, little waving hand on the protein. Yes, exactly. Over here. And all those army of cells that they've gotten on their side of the cancer now are all killed. Their army's gone, and the immune system can come in and destroy the cancer. Now, you, you've completed a phase one, which everybody should know. You take, you start with a low dose and then a higher dose and a higher dose and a higher dose because you're looking for safety. What was the response just on phase one? It was everything we hoped for. The virus could be delivered to the tumor selectively. We were able to show that. Only to the tumor. It's highly selectively to the tumor, essentially only to the tumor. The immune system activates. We have very good evidence for that. The tumors in a number of patients shrunk gradually, went away, and have not come back for multiple years. And a lot of these patients have returned to a relatively normal life, go back to work, which is highly unusual in brain cancer. So that was just phase one, the dosing and safety. That was just phase one. And that's why the FDA, we believe, has recently given us what's called breakthrough designation, meaning we're on a fast track to try to accelerate this product to be able to get on the market as soon as possible. Now, you're in phase two, three. Usually go phase one, then phase two, phase two, three. They're like, no, 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 we're combining this. We're going to go two, three. What's the parameters of that study? The parameters is it's a randomized study. The phase two portion is already fully enrolled, uh, and it's comparing those patients Uh, who got our treatment versus standard of care. And we follow them for both tumor shrinkage, immunological activation against the tumor, uh, as well as long-term survival. How many patients are we talking about? We're in 67 centers in three different countries, uh, and we've enrolled so far 187 patients. 
And how long will that take to follow? You know, in, in these trials, it's, it's really event-driven. So there's an independent committee that follows events, and they give us uh, information about when we can stop the trial. You know, I think that's a really good point. Uh, we've had some bad news, people saying we're stopping all the th- everything early on. is such a disappointment. Then other times they say, we're taking everybody off placebo. <laughs> we're putting everybody on the drug. We're it's seeing that good a result. There are all kinds of results that can come out of a phase two study like that. Yes, and obviously we're a group of scientists and business people who are optimists and we wouldn't be doing this if we didn't strongly believe in in the positive outcome. Now we're calling this a phase two, three. What's the three part? The study's designed in order to save time to get the data we need, uh, that the study will be looked at at the phase two point, and then you could end up with what you want in terms of uh, an approvable study, or you could get feedback to add more something like add more patients. And so you, it's designed so we can enroll more patients if needed. Uh, we won't know until we see the data whether we have enough or we still need some more. That's highly unusual. Normally, you go to phase two, what you learn from phase two, and everything looks good. Then you design a whole phase three, and you re-enroll for that. This cuts years, years off of that. Well, in the field of cancer in general, especially immune therapy, this is what's happening in general. When drugs work well and work rapidly, uh, then you can take years off the drug development process. You found a good virus. You <laughs> engineered the virus. To, you inserted the genes you wanted to deliver. The viruses, when they enter a cell, they, they literally take their genes and stick them right into the DNA of the, of the cell that they're in. Um, Exactly what you wanted to insert in. Was that ever a question or is that part of the science itself? This is a brand new treatment. It is always a question. The first question is, would the virus work in humans like it works in preclinical models? And and we're very excited that it's doing what we had hoped for in terms of getting into the cancer cells, delivering the proper gene, and activating the immune system. Now, the, so the first part is safety and biodistribution of the virus. The next part is the efficacy. Uh, and the parameters we look at for efficacy are the lifespan of the person, their clinical condition, and the ability by MRI of the tumors to shrink. We measure the tumor every six weeks for the life of the patient. Let's talk about glioblastoma. You picked a very tough cancer. We chose this cancer uh, for a very particular reason. These patients had the most to gain. And since it's an experimental treatment, you wanted to go after the people who needed your treatment the most. And we were fortunate that in spite of decades and decades of trials in cancer drugs that just didn't work, our drug is very promising. How do you administer it? The virus can actually be given either at the time of surgery uh, into the tumor left behind, and in most cancer surgery, there's tumor left behind, even though you don't see it. It also can be given intravenously. And so we have a new study we're running right now in multiple different types of cancer where the virus is administered intravenously. Do you expect this will have to be readministered throughout the person's lifetime? 
you're hitting on one of the reasons that we've selected this virus. It's a, a retrovirus, and it integrates into the DNA of the cancer cell, and it produces progeny virus by budding. So it doesn't alert the immune system there that, is, that the virus is there. It um, can create a factory to spread the virus to other cancer cells uh, until they're all infected. And they're all gone. And eventually they're all gone, hopefully. And the we have virus, to prove that. And, yes. and, 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 and theoretically, the virus dies with them. Yes, the virus should die if you got rid of every last cancer cell. Uh, just to remind you, though, that cancer cells are tricky. Uh, they go to sleep, hibernate for decades, and then they wake up. But the good news is if the cancer cell wakes up and starts deciding to be a cancer instead of a resting cell, the virus should still be there to allow for treatment. So you may not need further administrations. Right. That is uh, very possible. If you think about uh, polio virus, we don't ever think about getting another vaccination against polio. We feel that our immune system has long-term memory against whatever antigen that it's created immune response to. Well, Dr. Gruber, thank you so much. I hope you will come back. Keep us updated. Certainly will. Thank you for your time. Dr. Harry Gruber is the president for science and innovation at Tokagen, which has a number of metastatic cancer studies underway. Their treatment for glioblastoma, which has received breakthrough therapy designation from the FDA, continues to enroll patients, and they are conducting other studies for patients with colorectal, breast, lung, pancreatic, and renal cancers, as well as melanoma. More information regarding enrollment in a Tokagen clinical study is available at tokagen.com. That's T-O-C-A-G-E-N, tokagen.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nocktrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.